Hello and welcome to the Europolex podcast, episode number one. I'm Ewan Healy. And I'm Gabriel Hedengren. And in this episode, we're going to be presenting and contextualizing and talking about the upcoming UK general election. We will. In less than a week, UK voters, as you will probably all know, will head out to vote in quite an unusual election. So it's the first December election for almost 100 years and the fourth general election of the 2010s. So it falls sort of month or less, just a bit over a month, I guess, of, of campaigning, triggered by the passing of the Early Parliamentary General Election Act at the end of October this year. And I guess to sort of contextualize it a little bit, Ewan, you can say that while the first half or I guess the summer of 2019 sort of saw UK party political spectrum in flux following the European election with the Brexit party and the Liberal Democrats surging, we've seen, as I guess you usually will see in the UK due to how elections work here, sort of a two-horse race emerging once again between Labour's Jeremy Corbyn and then Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party. You tend to get that two-horse race model in the UK because of the user-majoritarian voting system called first-past-the-post, in which the candidate with the plurality of the vote wins the seat. And there's 650 seats which are up for grabs on Thursday, this coming Thursday, the 12th of December. And I have here the numbers. There are 3,415 candidates running for the mm -hmm. 650 seats, representing 68 political parties. And there are 206 independent candidates running as well. You and I guess talk just a bit about these two parties then, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. So I guess whilst this is the fourth, fourth general election of this decade, basically the whole decade has seen the Conservative Party in power under David Cameron and then Theresa May and now Boris Johnson since July. So it will be Boris's first general election as Prime Minister and leader of the party. It's also him who sort of triggered the election and managed to get it through Parliament in October. And I don't know if you agree, Ewan, but you can sort of say that this election is a response to the 2017 election, which led to the Han Parliament, which has made it very difficult, as you will all know, and you will all have followed the Brexit back and forth drama over the past few years. And now this is Boris Johnson's chance from his perspective to get a hold of Parliament again and sort of take back control of the Brexit process. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Gabriel. I think really the only thing that the 2017 general election said for sure is that there was going to be another general election within five years, less than the standard <laughs> term. I think that's yeah. all the 2017 general election put in stone because... So in 2015, the Conservative Party, led by David Cameron, won a surprise majority, if it was a small majority, and the, the Labour Party replaced their leader, elected Jeremy Corbyn as their leader. And after the 2016 EU referendum, David Cameron stepped down as leader, and Theresa May took over, and the poll suggested that Theresa May was basically on course for a very large majority in the snap yep. election that she called 2017. However, didn't go to plan for her and actually they lost their majority and so there were just a few seats shy and so a confidence and supply deal was negotiated with a party from Northern Ireland called the Democratic Unionist Party who are a they sit with a non-inscripts group in the European Parliament and were are a sort of Christian fundamentalist a national conservative party and between yeah. the two of them they allowed Theresa May to lead a government but it guaranteed that Theresa May would never face an election again as the leader of the Conservative <laughs> Party and it guaranteed that there would need to be a new yeah. soon and that became much more prevalent, much more evident when Theresa May's Brexit deals were rejected. So yeah, and I guess to talk about the other sort of Prime Minister candidate, Jeremy Corbyn, in 2017, that was sort of, I guess, his huge moment as leader of the Labour Party due to such a huge surge during that campaign, which I guess most people would agree was very successful campaign for him mm. and sort of managed to rally a lot of young people and sort of shift the image of 
Labour more towards the left and sort of cementing his role as leader. But since then, in the past two years, the party has really started struggling in the polls. They lost a lot of ground earlier this year as the Brexit issue, I guess, became again more and more salient and the Liberal Democrats took more space and became the big Remain party. So they sort of entered this last week of campaigning from a weaker standpoint than the same stage in 2017, I'd say. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I think they're definitely in a, in a weaker position and suffering from a little bit from sort of a re-upsurge of the Scottish National Party in Scotland and then like you say from the Liberal Democrats taking a significant or well what remains to be seen but is likely to be a, a not insignificant proportion of their sort of remain backing vote base that would have voted for the party in 2017 part of that sort of coalition that Corbyn managed to build yeah electoral coalition election. So I guess the two realistic predictions of what will happen at this point, looking at the polls, it's either that Boris Johnson manages to get a majority for the Conservative Party, or that there'll be a hung parliament. Mm. And I guess in that situation is when all these smaller parties, so Liberal Democrats, Scottish Nationalist Party, and the other regionalist party will be able to leverage power in Parliament. So they also become important if that's what UK voters end up handing to Parliament yeah. next week. And I guess that's something we hope that we will be able to discuss with our Deputy Editor-in-Chief today, Matthew Nicholson, who's also our team member responsible for the UK and Ireland. Are you there, Matthew? Hello. Yes. Hi. Welcome to the pod, Matthew. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, very exciting. Especially now, as you can now find us on Apple Podcasts, which is just such a... I I was actually out on a night out last night when the email came through that we've been accepted (laughs) by Apple Podcasts, and in the middle of a nightclub, showed all my friends that we've been accepted to Apple Podcasts. So... I must have made their evening. Yeah, made their (laughs) evening. Go us. (laughs) <laughs> Fantastic. So Matthew, this election what? seems to be centred around Brexit, but is it really a Brexit election or is it just like the 2017 election and it was supposed to be a Brex- about Brexit, but other things were the focus? Yeah, you're right. I mean, in 2017, everyone, I think, expected that to be the Brexit election. Uh, Theresa May called it so she could strengthen her hand to get a better Brexit deal. But Labour were very successful in turning that election onto other issues, such as the Conservatives' record. And they've been trying to do that again this time round, but I think in the context of the, the constant Brexit crises we've had in the last year, that it's been constantly in the news, that all, all the you know all the parliamentary drama that's been happening, and also the fact that I think Boris Johnson has been much more successful at hammering his very simple single message of getting Brexit done. I think Brexit has been dominating this campaign in a way that we haven't seen in 2017. So where are we in terms of the polls, Matthew, at this stage? Are you able to make any predictions for us how the vote will go on Thursday? Well, I predicted the last two elections wrong, like like most people, to be fair. So I'm not sure if I would feel comfortable making a proper prediction. But definitely what we've seen since the summer is the Conservatives... I've gone through two different periods of surging their vote. They had one surge after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, and they they took back a lot of votes from Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Mm -hmm. And then, again, that's essentially been repeated after the election was called in October, where they've really, they've shot up to around 40 to 45%, right back to where they were in 2017. But Labour have also been seeing their own surge after staying fairly stagnant at around 25%, depending on which poll you look at. They've also shot up to around the kind of low mid-30s since the campaign was called, taking a lot of votes from the Liberal Democrats in particular. But what the general trend I'm seeing from all the polling data, the, the leads that the Conservatives have, things like which parties trusted more on essential issues, leader approval ratings, it's looking like a fairly secure lead for um, the Conservative Party. And currently the Europe elects projection that we have that we last published on the 3rd of December, that has the Conservative Party on an 82% chance of winning a majority, which I think feels about right. 
looking at the polls. I think I, I would agree with you. That feels like the direction that we're going in at the moment. In the last general election, obviously, there was that surge of the Labour vote towards the end of the campaign, and it caught everyone a little bit by surprise. And then on election night, it definitely caught everyone by surprise. The hung parliament was a big surprise. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like that's going to happen again. It feels like we're a week out now, and it doesn't feel like there's that surge, which was experienced last time, and we might be on set for a, a conservative majority. But yeah. how big that's going to be is it is difficult to tell. It's hard to tell because Labour have seen quite a marked increase since the election was called and I think a lot of people were thinking oh this is going to be just exactly like 2017 but in the last week or so that seems to have stalled quite a bit. Yeah. Do you but think I, that upsurge in the main two parties the sort of um, two-party system being reinforced as we've reached the election time and that's got much to do with the Brexit party agreeing to stand down in Conservative party seats. Yeah, that's definitely a major factor. The Brexit party were losing ground anyway, as I think a lot of their supporters were thinking, oh, well, we'll either return to the Conservative party or we'll tactically vote for them as the best vehicle for getting Brexit done. But when Nigel Farage unilaterally announced, he didn't do a deal with Boris Johnson, but unilaterally announced that they would be standing down in Conservative-held seats, that's made them essentially a much smaller player in this election and it's allowed a lot of the pro-leave pro-Brexit vote to consolidate around the Conservative Party in a way that isn't happening with the Remain vote to the same extent. I was wondering, so obviously whereas there are other issues as well, as always when there's a general election, Brexit will right after we have a new parliament and we have a new government, because of this new deadline in January and because this whole process being so dominant in what this new government will do, it's going to be the first sort of big thing after the election. So I was wondering if you could just go through what in the various scenarios, what will that mean? in the short term for the Brexit process and will it matter how big a conservative majority turns out to be if that's what we get? Yeah, well so if as we establish is probably the most likely outcome the Conservatives win a majority then they will try and probably succeed to pass the deal that uh, Boris Johnson negotiated earlier in the year. They actually already had the numbers to pass that deal before the election was called. It looked like that was going to pass but the reason that Boris Johnson wanted to run for an election was that there weren't the votes to do that on the timescale that he wanted, whereas if he wins a majority, he would probably be able to do that much more quickly. And so I think, I mean, he's made this quite big deal about the fact that all of the, ca the Conservative candidates have signed up to support this deal. So I don't think at this stage, the size of his majority would make a big difference in terms of whether the deal passes or not. But what could be more interesting is that once this deal passes and Britain presumably leaves the European Union by the end of January, that's only the beginning of a whole new stage in the Brexit process to discuss <laughs> Britain's future trading relationship with the European Union, which that's something that Jeremy Corbyn's been mentioning quite a lot in the campaign saying, you know, this could take seven years. We're going to be discussing this for another seven years while this goes on. And that could throw up all kinds of complications and problems and splits, depending on how that goes. So in, in for that stage, if Boris Johnson's able to win a larger majority, that would presumably leave him in a much more comfortable position. But Labour's... So Labour's position then, yeah, you're just... Yeah, Labour's position is a bit less clear in terms of the actual outcome it would result in. So their policy right now, which they've got to after a period of kind of bouncing between between various different positions is that they support a second referendum on the EU, or I suppose technically a third referendum if we count the original in the 1970s, <laughs> where they would negotiate their own Brexit deal with the European Union, which would be a fairly softer, closer version than the one that Boris Johnson has negotiated. And then they would put that to a referendum with the options being that deal and remaining in the European Union. So they would prevent no deal or a hard Brexit being an option. And then Jeremy Corbyn has said, and this is something that he's been getting a lot of criticism for from the Conservatives, he's said that he will remain neutral in that in that referendum so that he can plausibly carry out the result of that. Could you just spell out to us then 
obviously those are the two main parties, but then there are other, other sort of minor parties. Could you just spell out to us really quickly which of those sort of the minor parties, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, the Green parties, which of them is going to sort of win or lose from the election? So the Liberal Democrats were hoping after after their surge earlier in the year and after they came second in the European Parliament election, they, they were thinking that this would be a, a great result for them, that they would reverse the losses they'd made. And they had been polling almost neck and neck with Labour for several months over the summer. They, they never quite surpassed Labour, but they were in a very solid third place. But partly due to the squeezing of, of the votes on the first past the post that we've mentioned, but also partly just because I think of mistakes the Liberal Democrats have made, things are not going as well for them. I think one big mistake people were are kind of generally thinking, you know, was that is the point where this happened was where the Liberal Democrats announced that they would revoke Brexit unilaterally if they win a majority rather than go through a second referendum, which I think even a lot of Remain supporters feel is quite undemocratic. The SNP are having a better campaign, I think partly because of the collapse of Labour in Scotland. They're, they're hoping they can pick up a fair number of seats, although their sites are maybe not quite as, as good as they, they were, they'd have been hoping earlier on. A lot of those Conservative seats are looking like they might be a bit more resilient than they might originally have hoped, but I think they definitely have a good shot of regaining a number of the seats that they, they lost in the 2017 election. Uh, and for the Green their vote share in polling is remaining surprisingly resilient and that it's still around three to four percent. I think I was expecting to see a bit more of that be squeezed towards Labour in the, the two-party tactical context. Before that three to four percent, they're not really going to see you know much of a result in seats because of that, because of the electoral system. They're going to hold on to the one seat they currently have, which is held by former party leader Caroline Lucas, but mm-hmm. I think it's very unlikely that they will build from that. They might get one or two second places, that they yeah. might be happy with. Gabriel and Matthew, what is one constituency that you're going to be watching really closely? And what is also your favourite or funniest moment from the campaign so far? In our sort of world famous quick fire questions at the end of an interview. <laughs> oh, it's hard to pick just one because I have a whole list that I'm going to be watching as the results come in. But... I mean, in terms of the kind of result that will determine or I guess be a bit of a bellwether for the rest of the election, I think seats like Canterbury or Kensington, which were seats that had been Conservative for quite a while, but Labour won quite surprisingly in 2017. I'm going to be watching how they do, because if Labour is unable to hold on to those, then I think that looks like that that's the path towards a Conservative majority. And for the funniest moment, there was this really weird meme that went around about a week or two ago, which I think was entirely a fake news story that someone must have posted on on Twitter about Joe Swinson being a, a squirrel killer, that she <laughs> had killed a squirrel at some point in the campaign, that she supported killing squirrels, and then it's escalated that she would, if Prime Minister, have this whole campaign on killing squirrels. Um, and, it, and it didn't help that in an interview later that day, someone asked her whether she would be willing to use nuclear weapons, and she answered with a very kind of emphatic and enthusiastic yes, which then evolved into Joe Swinson is going to start nuking squirrels. <laughs> Well, Matthew, just finally, on Jo Swinson, she's obviously uh, struggled quite a lot this campaign. And one seat that I'll be looking at quite with a lot of interest is her seat, uh, since that's also looking like it might be a close race. So is there a chance that she'll lose her seat, do you think? I think it's still unlikely. I think the Lib Dems are doing well enough that you should be able to hold that off, plus presumably the resources that they'll be putting into that seat and Joe Swinson's name recognition. I think it would be a, a mistake to assume that, that that would be an easy gain for the SNP. But of all the main leaders' seats in the UK, that's definitely the one that's looking the most vulnerable. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. This has been such an interesting conversation to have and really interesting to get your thoughts. But what's going to come? Yes. We're going to chat a little bit later on the podcast about where, what more information our followers can find out. Thanks for coming on, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. So you and the podcast isn't over yet. You've been busy this week having other interesting discussions. I have. Yeah. So this week I had a really interesting conversation with a pollster, which 
you know what, I'm not going to try and trail it in any way. I'm just going to give it to you to listen to. So enjoy this little bit of music and then the interview. Hello there, uh, Ewan here again. Very, very, very excited to bring you our, our first interview in the history of the podcast, which is pretty exciting. This guest is without a doubt the most exciting guest we've ever had to interview, which is easy to say because it is the first one. But no, Matt is a really exciting guest to have on. So yeah, we've got with us Matt Singh today. Matt is the founder and director of the polling and political analysis company Number Cruncher Politics, who conduct polling in the United Kingdom and provide some of the best and most incisive analysis in the business around. So Matt, hello and welcome to the pod. Hello, Ewan. Thanks so much for coming on today, especially in the, the busyness of the pre-election period. We're just a week out now at a time of recording, so it's pretty exciting. Matt, to you, in all your wisdom and knowledge, what is going on? What do the polls say at the moment? Well, at the moment, all of the polls have got the Conservatives in the lead. They do vary quite a bit on the size of that lead. So in the last week or so, we've had everything from a relatively narrow lead of six points over the Labour Party to a much wider lead of 15 points. Now, this is not just statistical noise or margin of error. There have been some, some consistent differences between different pollsters, depending on the methods they're using. But as things stand at the moment, all of the polls put the Conservatives ahead and probably by enough to win an overall majority as things stand. That's really interesting. So what are those methodological differences then that some of the pollsters are sort of perhaps overemphasizing or underemphasizing that might bring out the varying size of the Conservative lead? Well, there are all sorts of different methodological decisions that pollsters need to make in order to try and get something approaching a representative sample of the population within the real world time constraints and budget constraints that pollsters have to work to. And so there are often a number of factors and it's hard to unpick all of them. One thing that in particular seems to be happening this time is to do with the way that they treat the results of previous elections. So if your sample is representative of the population, obviously it has to be representative in terms of demographics and geography and so on. But also if you ask people how they voted last time, then in theory, their answers, if you, your sample is representative, they should be somewhere close to the result. However, the problem is that people are often very poor at remembering uh, <laughs> how they voted last time. And it appears that a lot of people who said in 2017, just after the previous election, that they had voted Labour are now, the, the exact same people are now telling pollsters that they did not. And so if you don't take account of that, as some pollsters are not, you may perhaps be end up inflating the Labour vote. So that is part of where the difference between different pollsters comes from. But there are a number of other factors as well. So at this point, it's a little bit tricky to, to say exactly where it is. But that's the one of the main things that people have identified. That's really interesting. I mean, there was definitely, you know, in the UK has been some sort of historic edginess or concern around poll results. People do like to criticize the results of polls, you know, in the lead up to previous election, in campaigns to previous elections. And I just guess my questions, my next question would be around, is there anything to that? The mistakes, were there mistakes made in 2015 and 2017? Or is that just sort of partisan noise that people like to criticize the polling when perhaps it doesn't show them things going exactly how they want to be going? 
Well, there certainly are people like that, and and you get them in all parties and indeed in all in all countries. I mean, I, I don't think that's something specific to the UK. There has been some particular criticism aimed at UK pollsters. I'm not sure the data really bears out the impression that polls in the UK are, are much less accurate. There have been some reasonably big polling misses in other countries. But one thing about the UK, because of the first past the post electoral system, relatively small errors in the popular vote, which is what polls obviously measure, they don't directly, national polls at least, don't directly predict seats. You can have a, a relatively small error in the popular vote that in terms of the percentage of seats, often translates into a much bigger and therefore more politically consequential error. And I mean, all of the elections in this decade have produced relatively close results in terms of where one party getting a, a majority or not. And then when you have other situations like, say, referendums that can end up being very close, there's, there has, I think, been a, a slight perception that the polls in the UK have been markedly more prone to errors. But I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that small errors, partly because of the electoral system and partly because a number of contests have been quite close, it does tend to exaggerate the effect of um, what's in a in, in a proportional system might not be a particularly noticeable polling error. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that the pollsters have done to try and sort of deal with and counteract that, the problem is that you can, you know, to try and project the outcome or work out the outcome under first past the post can be quite challenging. You get things like the YouGov uh, MRP poll, which for our listeners, if they haven't seen it, is a is a poll that's polled about 100,000 people at the end of the polls up to the 27th of November and has an estimate for the Conservatives on around a 30 seat majority. And it does a constituency by constituency projection of what the result in each constituency would be. Is this likely to be more accurate than other polls? In the last election, it was sort of claimed to be, but there's been some question marks around that more recently. Yes, I mean, what MRP does is basically slice the the electorate up into extremely granular segments. So, for example, one might be men within a five-year age bracket living in a particular city who voted for whichever party it was last time and voted for or against Brexit and, and a number of other things. And so when you slice the, the population up into segments that small, you get a very large number of them. And then they work out how many there are in each how likely people in that segment are to vote and then how likely they are to vote for which party and then you put all that together and you basically get pretty good estimates it has to be said for each constituency although it has to be said that the way that it allocates the national vote between seats or the change from the last election in the national vote between changes in results locally is based on the differences between different areas in terms of their political history but also in terms of their demographics so to the extent that results locally are driven by that it does a you know a decent job everywhere the problem that it has is that in some areas you can get distinctly local issues such as an argument over the hospital down the road or the performance of the council, the municipal government, or indeed a particular candidate or where you have a local party or a high-profile independent candidate or something like that. In those situations, if you care a lot about a specific seat, then the other way of working out local results, namely doing local polling, then comes into to use because that can tell you things that the MRP models and things like that can't. So there are two different ways of doing polling in this electoral system to try and work out the seats. 
and it kind of depends what your objective is but there are two sort of different ways of doing it and they generally tend to get relatively similar results yeah thank you so much for that really really good explanation really useful because i think it's something that could be really easily misunderstood and so i suppose you know, we're seeing that as a projected majority, there's still a week to go. How much volatility do you think is possible in a week? Do you think there will be a conservative majority at the week? I'm just trying to get out of you what you think is actually going to happen on election day. I mean, volatility is certainly possible. I think what happened in 2017 is gave the light to the theory that, that campaigns don't change anything. I mean, there was a very dramatic move in the polls during the campaign. But from about 10 days out, if you look at the movements in individual polls, that movement largely stopped. Polling averages often have a lag because you're averaging polls several days back. It often looks as though a trend is going on later or longer than it actually is. So there isn't really any historical precedent with the possible exception of 1970 when there was a very late move. There isn't much precedent for a a big move from this point onwards. So if the polls were dead right, then we'd be you know, reasonably confident in predicting a, a conservative overall majority at this point. There is, of course, a question mark over the accuracy of the polls, because even though, uh, as I say, I don't think there's a particular problem in the UK with polling accuracy compared to other countries, because of the issue with the electoral system, a relatively small error, possibly in combination with a relatively small move or the undecided voters breaking one way or perhaps different types of voters being more or less likely to turn out on the day than usual, which is a consideration in the UK because turnout is relatively low. It hasn't been above 70% for more than 20 years now in um, election. So with all of these things, there is obviously a chance that the Conservatives end up with a lead smaller than the one that they would need for an overall majority, which is probably about six points or so. But Again, that's not a fixed number. So yes, a conservative majority at this point is favourite, but it wouldn't take a big move or a big measurement error in either direction for it either to be a hung parliament or a relatively big conservative majority, depending on which way that error went. So all to play for with a week to go, but as things stand, conservative majority would be the uh, likely single outcome. Wow. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been a really interesting 10 minutes. And I suppose uh, just to finish up on the last question, this is something that a question that I've been asked a lot by my followers, and you'll see it a lot in the responses to our tweets. It's a key question around someone who gained quite a lot of notoriety running against Theresa May last time, and that is Lord Buckethead. I don't particularly enjoy this question, but he's running against Boris Johnson this time alongside another man named Count Binface. Who's going to win? <laughs> Good question. Um, I mean, that is one of these cases where it's a battle between two individual candidates. It's in a it's in a single constituency, and it's one. This is uh, Uxbridge and uh, South Risley, which is Boris Johnson's constituency, where no one has actually done a poll, or at least not done a public poll. And so it really is a bit of a guessing game. I mean, it, the Lord Buckethead does have the advantage of being on the ticket of the Monster Raving Looney Party, which is a well-established and long-running satirical um, party. So maybe there's an advantage for him. But also Count Binface, I think, has got quite a popular viral video out. So uh, depending how that plays locally, yeah, maybe the Count could be in with a chance in that matchup. But who knows? All right. Thank you so much, Matt. This has been really, really great. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks, you and all the best.
So you and in your interview with Matt, you talked about the well-known challenges、uh, when it comes to projecting the results of UK parliamentary elections. But even with those challenges, Europolex, we also have our own projection that we put out there. Can you talk about what that's looking like when we look through our own valuable data? Well, that's it. There's nothing that could stop us from doing our valuable work. There's no no challenge <laughs> too great. And let's be real.、Yeah. The post is a massive challenge, and、um, so we use a we have a projection, and we're using all of the polling data that comes out, and there is a lot of polling data that's coming out at the moment. Every day, we're getting several new polls. So it's a busy market.、And、what we do is we we use that election and information from previous elections through a method called proportional national swing, and so we calculate what the outcome of the election is coming going to look like, and that looks like right now, if you need a 325 seats ish for a majority, that depends slightly on some other factors, but 325 seats for majority, the Conservatives are currently. Looking like they're going to get 22 seat majority on that projection, a 347 seats, which is actually slightly down from our projection from the previous week. So the projection I'm talking about is the one from the 3rd of December. But if the one、uh-huh. from the previous week, that's actually slightly down, and Labour are up just now, getting back over the 200 seat mark. And so, as you can see, there is a serious deficit that needs to be overcome for Labour to be able to take over. But that said, not impossible. First past、no. tends to amplify the small changes. So some small changes could really make a significant difference in the days to come. Yeah, I think we'll all be following it with fascination. It will be very exciting on Thursday to see the result of this month-long, very intense, quite weird campaign. Absolutely. So over the next week, obviously, Europolex, our team, will be publishing blogs. We'll be reposting all these polls, obviously, putting everything into context for our followers. Can you just summarize sort of what it is that we will be doing, so we all know where to look for it and what to expect? There's a lot. So especially if you're listening to this. You're still quite confused about what's going to go on. We've got a lot of resources which should be able to help you. Firstly, I've just finished writing a piece for the website, which is going to be launched this weekend at the time of recording. Just got a breakdown of what I think the key fights are in the election to come on Thursday. We've got YouTube videos informing you about what every single party are and contextualising them in their policy and in the European context. They're going to be coming out this week. Those scripts, I put a lot of effort into writing, so I hope you enjoy them. And obviously, on the day, we're going to have loads of coverage on Twitter. We're not allowed to post any sort of information about actually voting results. During the day, so there's no midday turnout declarations as you get in some parts of some of the European countries. But from 2200 GMT, so 10 o'clock at night, we will get the first exit poll, which is produced for the main news channels, and we'll be reporting what that's going to look like. That'll give us a very good indication of what the night's going to look like as a whole. Then we'll be covering it through the night, constituency by constituency, and of course on our beloved live blog on Europolex.eu. It'll be a great time. I'm going to be very delirious. It's going to be like 4 a.m. I'm going to probably start <laughs> talking about dogs and horses. It's going to be great. So get excited for that. Some deliriousnesses of me and the ridiculousness of. The campaign, lots of information about Count Binface and Lord Buckethead, which I hate how much we've talked about this this podcast. I hate how much. Yeah, they always anyway, take over, don't they? They're just everywhere. So yeah, it's going to be a really good time. Come join me. I'll be there. Matthew will be there, and there'll be all sorts of other members of our team through the night, helping to contextualize and understand the results. Thanks for all your hard work, Ewan. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Europolex podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between episodes. And make sure you subscribe and review this podcast for us to keep us around for more. You can find us at Europolex.eu and at Europolex across all social media. The only exception there is Instagram, where you can find us at Europe. Up underscore Lex. See you next time.
You've been listening to the EuropeLX podcast. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peña Rios and Leon Lizana. The music was by Jose Alvarado and it was hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. We are currently looking for podcast sponsors, so get in touch via our website if you'd like to advertise with us. Awesome.